everybody. How's it going? Happy Sunday. God, thank you for today. Thank you for all the blessing in our lives, especially this blessing of a life. We ask for your strength and your wisdom to do your will with it, for that is when we are the most fulfilled. Give us your understanding and your peace as we go out doing your works. You are our God and our provider. We worship you now together. Amen.
Welcome to Friends Church. Today is a very special day for us because it's camp day for our high schoolers. So if you are coming to camp, I want to ask you if you'll come up on stage really quick. I know we, I haven't seen all of our camp people yet, but there's some here. Leaders, Joel, you want to come up in your cage? Mariah, just come up. And anybody else? Tanya? Sweet. So we're bringing 17 students. I know this is only like five. Hey, guys. Uh, out to Globe Creek. We're going to be there for the next three, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, four days, uh, doing a camp on kingdom and culture. So this morning's message is actually the kickoff of camp. So we're really excited. We're bringing uh, some new faces and leadership, and we go there every year. Super awesome time just to get away from all the noise and stuff and just have a great time. So I want you guys to just stand with us really quick, and if you can extend your hands, we're going to pray for these kids and the leaders and just everything. There's just power in when we pray together. So, Father, I thank you for these beautiful young adults that you brought into our lives, Lord, to help uh, to just walk with, Lord, and to build up in their faith and the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen relationships as we go to camp this week. I pray that you would make new relationships. God, I pray for your word to be uh, heard clearly and for hearts to be changed. Uh, just in all of it, Lord, to be glorified. It says that it's going to be thunderstorms for four days. If it is, that's cool, but we'd like sun too. So if you can make that happen, uh, that'd be awesome. Daniel prayed and it didn't rain for two years, so you got our back on that one. We thank you for this time, for this church that you've brought us to be a part of, and we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. You guys can go. Get off the stage, Harrison. Uh, anyways, um, yeah, if uh, you guys have kids in kids' church, we're going to dismiss them in just a second. I'm going to pray for kids' church, though. We have such incredible leaders that uh, give their time every single week to present the word and the truth of the gospel to our kids, and we are so blessed to have them. So let's pray for them. Father, we thank you for all the people who pour out their lives for the sake of our children, Lord, from the nurseries to the toddler, all the way up through the junior high this morning. I pray that you would just be in those rooms, that you give the leaders clarity of mind, that they would speak truth, Lord, and that hearts would just be drawn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you got kids, you can bring them to Kids Church. One of the things I wanted to note, too, is that Fusion is happening next week. Mariah's been sending out some stuff. Uh, it's going to be a trip going down to Anchorage with junior high and high school. We have a few more open slots, so if you want to sign up for Fusion, deadline is this Wednesday, but come talk to Mariah today after she's done singing, and she can get you signed up for that. All right. If you guys want to stand with us, we're going to continue to worship.
Isn't silence beautiful sometimes? You just feel like the weight of the silence. It's so good. We're dealing with the heaviness of a holy God. Well, good morning, church. I'm going to remember to drink this or Jeff is going to kill me. I got it, Jeff. Um, Welcome to Friends Church. If you guys are visiting, we're glad you're here. We started a series last week, and we're going to be in it for however long God says to be in it. (laughs) We don't really have that clear of a blueprint. We just know we have a big issue to address, and that issue is kingdom and culture. You know, when we were going through the identity series, I was really praying. We were praying as pastors just about where do we go next? Because when you're in a series like that, the Lord's Prayer was awesome too, just because you had these clear marks. Um, you know, you do the first two verses and the next two verses and the next two. It's just like you got these clear things with the identities. It's like, okay, we got 10 top identities. Let's dive into them. Then it's like, well, where do we go next? Do we just pick a top 10 list or do we do these things? And what I really felt burning in my spirit is that we have to address what's happening in culture. Um, And with that comes the realization, I think, for all of us uh, in the leadership of Friends Church that we don't even know what we're supposed to be addressing when it comes to culture yet. But as we pour into God's spirit and the word that he's going to give us direction... So today we're going to be uh, really laying a blueprint for why there is a tension that exists between the kingdom and culture and why it can never be lifted and how, uh, why we're never supposed to lift it. Before I get ahead of myself, let's uh, ask the ushers to come forward before they stare me down. Uh, Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you, Lord, that this is the first day of camp. God, we thank you for all the students that you brought into our lives, all of the young adults that not only am I blessed to uh, help lead, Lord, but that I call my friends. And God, I pray that as we go out to camp today that uh, you would just be glorified in it. And Lord, this morning as we start session one of camp, that us as a body would come to a revelation of the importance of that we face when it comes to the tension between kingdom and culture. Lord, draw us out of our comfort, draw us out of our illusions of peace into your reign of peace and your kingdom and your joy. Father, we thank you for everybody that pours into this body uh, that you have brought together. We thank you for everybody that gives their, their time and their money and their lives for the sake of the vision that you've given us at Friends and We pray that you would further it all for your kingdom and your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, one of the books that we've been in for the last few months when we were going over identities is really, uh, well, the chapter 2 of 1 Peter has really been one of the staple points at least for my studying as I've been uh, looking at in the last couple months, all the sermons we've been doing, um, it's a heavy book. It's a really good book. At this time, it's probably 
the book uh, that God has put on my heart to keep diving into. So it seems fit that as we move from a series on identity into the series of kingdom and culture, that we're only stepping forward one verse from where we left off on our last um, on our last series. And that is, uh, I think, just God's sovereignty and his grace that he would leave us in the same place because I think there's more that he wants to say to us this morning. And so we, we went over what it meant to be a holy nation and a chosen race and a uh, royal priesthood and all of these identities and about how God declares us to be this, so therefore we are, and in being this, we should walk accordingly in a response. Um, but the one thing that we never really hit on, and it was one thing that was really burning in me by the end of this series, um, was the fact that we never really got into what was happening in the culture at that time that Peter wrote these words to the church and said, you are a holy nation, you are a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood. So today what I want to do, and this is kind of separate from how I even sermon prep normally, because this week, as opposed to really diving into the Word, I mean, I dove into the Word, but where I was founded in and where I felt like God led me to was the history of Rome. So today we're going to be looking at the backdrop of this letter, because as I wrote in my uh, pastor's note out to you guys in an email, it's so important to understand context. It's easy to say, yeah, I'm a chosen race, I'm a royal priest, I'm a holy nation, and then get on with your merry life, uh, without really ever thinking about what that meant for the people who Peter was speaking it to. Because we have to realize that when these leaders, when these apostles, when these early church fathers, when they wrote, it was very, very intentional. There was something that was happening that made Peter go, I need to write a letter as the head of Rome, I need to write to the church and encourage them or discipline them or give them better revelation or whatever it might be. So the question I ask myself is what was happening in First Peter, what was happening in that time that he had to write this letter? So that's what we're going to be in today. So if we go back to the first century of Rome, we know that Jesus... Uh, his ministry was in 30 A.D. to 33 A.D. And once you get up to... Uh, but there's a lot of other things happening in the time. And in the first century, the Roman Empire was a very pagan place. It was a godless place. I mean, they had a bunch of gods, but they never had Yahweh. They did not believe in the one true God. Corruption might have been an understatement. It was widespread. Divorce and abandonment was rampant. Violence was everywhere. Marriage and sexual morality was scarce, if you could find it at all. The city was filthy. It was absolute, It was like New York times 50. Have you guys ever been to New York? That place stinks. Like, literally, the odor. But the city of Rome in the first century was made up of 66 million people. And the life expectancy was less than half of what it is today. Around 23 years old is what you were expected to live. So I'm like, I'm seven years past. Praise the Lord. Um, virtually everyone had lost a child. 
And by the time any child was raised, they uh, had lost at least one parent, if not both. Modern methods of birth control were unknown, so abortion was a common widespread practice, but much more than it is today. And because of medical procedures were primitive, germ theory had not even been discovered yet, soap wasn't invented, and antibiotics weren't even heard of. Infection was common, and many of the women that went under abortion became permanently sterile, and many of them died. But increasingly in those early centuries, one of the most common forms of birth control was infanticide, where they would wait to see the gender of a child, and then if it was a girl baby, they would take her down to the seashore or to the forest, and they would leave her there to die. And this resulted in significant disproportions in gender across the Roman Empire through those centuries. Epidemics were common, smallpox, measles, bubonic plague. Historically, we know that there were times where as much as half of the population of major cities were decimated by epidemics. And when the cities would need to be repopulated because of plagues or because of fires... The policy of the Roman government was to take the army to the far reaches of the Roman Empire and force march tens of thousands of people from their homes into the major cities to repopulate it. These people became disconnected. They had to leave their families, everything that they knew, sometimes their culture. And in some of the large populated areas of Rome, it happened so much because the plagues were so rampant that at one time there was up to 18 different languages being spoken in tight sections of cities. Nobody knew how to communicate. It was almost virtually impossible for them. Through all of this, the Roman Empire was fairly tolerant of religion. Uh, as long as people would swear their allegiance to Caesar, they could basically get along with their merry life, continue local politics and local religion uh, as normal. However, the Christians began to stand out increasingly with government because when called upon to say that Caesar is Lord, instead they would declare that Jesus is Lord. And they stood out from cultural norms. And so increasingly, the, the government began to turn against them. A lot of the religions of that day would just sort of assimilate with culture. Yeah, we got our own, but we just want to fit in. Nobody wants to die, obviously, so we're just going to go. And here comes this ragtag group of people who claim allegiance to Christ, and they, have, they are not like culture at all. And their beliefs aren't even private, they're public in the way that they live and the actions that they do and the choices they make. And so even though they only made up of four one thousandth, one thousandth of a percent, of one percent of the population, the Christians became to rub with Rome. And a historic day was July 19. A.D. 64, when the city of Rome burned. Rome was a city of very narrow streets. Its buildings were made of high wooden tenements or apartments. These complexes sometimes would be six stories high and dense in population, and the fire on that day became rampant and spread fast through the city. It burned with such a great concentration that large portions of Rome were lost, and it lasted for three days. 
And finally it started to subside, and at last they thought that there was hope that a fire would stop. Except to everyone's amazement, it started again, and again, and again, with much more ferocity than the first time. Large numbers of people lost their lives in awful deaths, and as I said, major parts of the city were destroyed. Among the people of the population, there was uh, little suspicion of who did this. Because the emperor of that time was Nero. And if you don't know anything about Nero, um, you might want to Google him sometime as long as you haven't eaten any food. Because he was a wicked man. And Nero had a strange fixation with buildings. He had this grand desire to build a great city with monuments built for himself to make his name great. And it was so... And so it was rumors that he started the fires. And history tells us that when people tried to put it out, he would send his guards to stop them. And when it started to burn out, he would order his soldiers to reignite the city. It was said of him that as the city burned, he watched gleefully from his tower. And one uh, Roman historian wrote that he was charmed by the loveliness of the flames and played his fiddle as to the sounds that they made. Rome burned while Nero fiddled. It's a famous saying. The people of Rome were absolutely devastated. They had lost everything, and the population began to turn against him, obviously. And their bitterness uh, was, it was, it was deep and somewhat deadly. And so Nero needed to divert the attention away from himself. He needed a scapegoat. And so he chose the Christians, and publicly he blamed them for burning Rome. Now, this was actually super intelligent on his behalf. It was ingenious, really, because the Christians were already victims of hatred and slander, big time. Um, They did not assimilate with the culture, and they didn't leave. And what they were saying was completely... What people were saying about them became these legends. Uh, The big ones were that they were cannibals. Christians were cannibals. Sexually immoral. They lacked family value. They were atheists. Anarchists. The Lord's Supper, which Christians held at that time after Jesus commanded his disciples to do this in remembrance of him, and we'll be doing it again, was held in Rome, and it was closed to pagans, so they sort of, sort of developed all kinds of strange imaginations of what happened in those meetings. The Romans did. And they heard about these Christians who were eating the flesh of their leader and drinking his blood, and so they accused them of cannibalism. In fact, they began to say that they ate babies and killed Gentiles to eat their bodies at the Lord's Supper. They also said that at these secret meetings, the Christians would share a kiss of love, that they would declare their love for one another, and whenever one of the apostles would write a letter to the church, they would always talk about how much they loved them. So, the people of Rome rumored and said that there was unbridled lust and orgies in those Lord's suppers as they took place. Rome said that the Christians lacked family values because their teacher Jesus was to them more important than their parents, their kids, their brothers, their sisters, their wives. 
And Christians used to talk about a time when the world would be dissolved into flames. And so it was easy to blame this fire on them. Because uh, in doing so, they said that the Christians were just trying to develop a fulfillment of their own prophecies. Historians tell us that even though that there were in Rome some judges who were honest enough and and prepared to acquit the Christians of these baseless charges, those judges were overpowered, ignored, and killed. Christians were now seen as aggressive, anarchists. They were guilty of hatred against civilized society. They were considered atheists because they did not serve the gods of Rome. And this is crazy because everything that I just read to you, I found in secular historical documents. This is not a biased account of trying to what we're going to be looking at today of trying to make them sound good or anything, most of the things that I studied this week are coming from historians through the ages that uh, don't even confess Christ. And when I read this stuff and then we read the testimony, I just go like, the gospel is so crazy because it's so true. One of the secular Roman historians, uh, Tacitus, wrote this at this time. Tacitus was a secular, he was a pagan Roman historian. He hated the Christians. The only person he hated more than the Christians was Nero. He freaking hated Nero. So we see these tensions meet right here because Tacitus, notice how he refers to the Christians, but then also notice how he... uh, Uh, reveals the truth of what happened in Rome at that time. He writes, In order to abolish the rumors that Nero burned Rome, Nero falsely accused and executed with the most exquisite punishments those people called Christians who were infamous for their abominations. The originator of the name Christ was executed as a criminal by the uh, procurator Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. And though repressed, this destructive superstition erupted again, not only through Judea, but was the origin, which was the origin of this evil, but also through the city of Rome, to which all that is horrible and shameful floods together and is celebrated. Therefore, first those were seized who admitted their faith, and then using information that they prodded from them, a vast multitude of Christians were convicted. Not so much so for the crime of burning the city, now catch this, but for hatred of the human race. In perishing, they were additionally made into sport. How did they kill them? They stitched them into the skin of animals and told them to run into the forest and Nero would send his hunting dogs to go chase them down and shred them to bits. They nailed them to crosses. They dipped them in uh, oil and they would light them on fire so that Nero could light his parties at night as the light time passed, or the daylight passed away. They were used as light nighttime lamps Nero gave his own gardens for this spectacle and performed a circus game in the habit of a charioteer mixing with the plebs or driving about the race course. 
Even though they were clearly guilty and merited being made the most recent example of the consequences of crime, people began to pity these sufferers because they were consumed not for the public good, but on account of the fierceness of one man's hatred. That's what Tacitus says. They were consumed not for the public good, but on account of the fierceness of one man's hatred. Christians perished in a delirium of savagery at that time. They were nailed to crosses. Lynching became very common. Within a few years, Christians were imprisoned, racked, seared, broiled, burned, scourged, stoned. Some were lacerated with hot knives, and others were thrown onto the horns of wild bulls. In the midst of all of this, the Bible calls the people to be holy. See, it was a year after Nero set Rome on fire that Peter wrote these words in his letter to the church. You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the pagans honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That is the context of this letter. As Christians were sown into animal carcasses and thrown to lions and burned at the stake, Peter says, be holy, church. When they speak against you as evil, let them see your life. Because in the end... When the ages pass away, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Christ is Lord and your testimony of what you have done now will only glorify God more in the end. Live holy. You know, I think that so much of us feel like what is happening in our culture is new or relevant or like streamline like it's it's something that's just like no one's ever gone through this this is nothing new what is happening in our culture with the church and the world sort of just trying to assimilate together because nobody wants to offend anybody and everybody just wants everybody to be loved everybody just wants everybody to be happy so whatever you think is right do What happens is that we loosen the tension that the Bible has never called us to loosen. The tension between the kingdom and the culture is biblical and should always be tight. Now, how we go about that tension, how we walk that out is everything. We'll get to that in a second. 
But I want us to see something here. Because in the midst of these people being persecuted and destroyed, Peter says, I urge you as sojourners. You know what that word means? It means foreigner, alien. It means I urge you as aliens. He's speaking to Romans who grew up in Rome. Greeks who grew up in Greece. You are an alien now. Because now you are a part of the kingdom of God. You are not a resident in this place. You cannot assimilate with them because you are not them. It's not an option. The church has never been called to assimilate with culture. To look at culture and say, yeah, that's right, you know. I guess for 2,000 years we've been getting it wrong. And since you're offended by some things, let's just change the Bible. You're serious. I mean, this isn't even a joke because it's not political. It's not civil. These issues are God's glory. What does he say to them? You have received mercy that you might proclaim the name of the one who called you out of darkness into light. Mercy, Eric? They're getting killed. Oh, man, we don't know what true joy is. If we think that it's a life lived out without pain or persecution, we're missing it. A life of joy is a life of knowing God. And not only are we called to not conform to the culture around us, we're foreigners, but he says something else. He says, you're exiles. And now this word, I've heard it translated in a couple Bibles as temporary residence, but it does not mean temporary residence. It's a unique Greek word that means resident alien, which means you're not temporary living here, but permanently living here. Though you are foreigners, you are permanent residents committed to this country. Yes, you are not like them. You are separate from them. But don't you ever think that you're just supposed to run and say, well, I'm just not going to touch that at all. Now, let's look in culture today of how people get into power. Because when we look at culture today, there's two big ways to do it. You either assimilate, you come one with the culture, and then you're just part of the, he- the higher echelon where you're just like, yeah, we're the good old boys. Let's take over the world. Because I've, be, I've, I've just become part of you. I'm not arguing. You gain power. Not only do you gain power, but there's no persecution because you're just one with everybody. Or you do the opposite. And you, uh, you look at the world and you say, we will have no part of that at all. Everything about that. None. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to deal with it. And in doing that, you raise yourself up into power. Why? Because you have become your own echelon your own hierarchy. So now you have a group of people that come to you and you say, we're completely separate from it. We don't even want to deal with it. You have power and you have no persecution. Where is the church called to be? Which side? Neither. See, we're we're called to be foreigners. Yes, we're called to, to be separate, but we're never called to look at culture and just attack it and not be in it. He says, no, you are foreigners, but you're exiles, which means stay there. Because the kingdom that I have come and given my blood for, that has been established in my death and resurrection, it grows through my living stones. And this ground that you're in is foreign, technically, but it is established for my kingdom, so you will stay put. There's going to be a tension there. 
We are not called to remove ourselves from the culture around us. This is exactly what uh, Jesus says in John 17 in his prayer. The only, I mean, literally the clearest picture of Jesus' heart outside of the Lord's Prayer. The longest prayer in the Bible is in John 17 when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says in John 17, 14 through 15, I have given them your word, God. And the Lord has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That is our charge. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Keep your conduct among the pagans honorable so that when they say you are evil, when they say you burned Rome, they may see your good deeds. And in the end, God will be glorified. This is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 5 when he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says your good works. Peter says your good deeds. My question to you is what is good? May they see your good deeds. May they see your good works, church. That is our call. You're going to be called evil, but do good works. What is good? See, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Do you realize that we were never meant to understand what is good or evil outside of God's truth. Because God is good. And the very opposite of what he is and his reign is, is wickedness. Sin is missing the mark only because God has a mark and it's not meeting it. He is good. And even our best attempts to try to be good outside of knowing God and submitting our lives to His reign and His truth conjure, are conjured out of a fallen heart. Jeremiah seventeen nine says, The heart is the most deceitful thing. No one can trust it. And in fact, Jesus, or God says to the people in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, He says, You've broken my law. Your heart is broken and it cannot be fixed. And that's why he established a new covenant because not only did he say, I'm going to give you a new spirit, but he said, I am going to give you a new heart. Why? So that we can find true goodness. So that we can understand what is good and what is evil through the lens of the one who gave us breath. Through the one who himself is declared good. Who identity and all uh, attributes fall from The world exists, or the church exists in a world that is in an overlap of the kingdoms. The kingdom of this age, the kingdom of God. We just need to grasp this point. This is something I really felt like God wanted me to say. This is what happened in the garden. I was reading through David Platt's book, Counterculture. I bought it for 
our leadership and Young and Company in preparation for camp, and it's an incredible book. And he highlighted a point just for a second that just clicked. It just ping-ponged all of these things that I've been thinking about God and about the garden for years, and he just said it so eloquently. So I want to just go off of that for a second. But this is what happened in the garden, that when the serpent came to Adam and Eve... He started asking questions. He started questioning God, and he said, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Because you're not going to die if you eat from the tree. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like him. You will know good and evil, Adam. You will know good and evil, Eve. Eat from it. And for the longest time, when I looked at that, when I looked at that scripture... I thought, man, so what they gained was the reality of good and evil because they became sin itself and they saw the the gap between who they once were under God and now who they are in a fallen state. They gained the knowledge of good and evil. But David Platt brings it a step further and I I just want to read this for you for a second because he says the meaning of scripture here goes beyond information about good and evil to, catch this, the determination of good and evil. In other words, for the men and women to eat from this tree was to reject God as the one who determines good and evil and to assume this responsibility themselves. The temptations in the garden was to rebel against God's authority and in the process make humans the arbiters of morality. When we understand this first sin, we realize that moral relativism in the 21st century is nothing new. When we attempt to usurp or even eliminate God, we lose objectivity for determining what is good and evil, right and wrong, moral and immoral. And so the fallen world flows out into cultures. And the hardest, one of the reasons it's so hard to talk about culture or even talk about culture is because culture is ingrained into us. What kid ever grows up and asks, why do we drive on the right side of the road? We just do. Why? Uh, Because that's what culture says. And it would be stupid not to drive on the right side of the road because you know you're going to get hit by a car. Why? Because they know on the other side they drive on the right side of the road. You know? Or even let's, let's bring it to something that we don't understand. Why is, it, why is it normal in India for men and women to be split in church? Men sit on this side, women sit on this side. Why? Because that's their culture. And for them, it's not even an issue. It's just like, that's what we do. So when we talk about culture, it's almost offensive for me to say, you know what, you're stupid for driving on the right side of the road. Isn't it? Because it just is like, what are you talking about? That's just what we do. But here's what happens in the fall. Is that cultures are built out of the best attempts of men trying to decide for themselves what is good and evil. And in the best attempts for men to decide what is good and evil, their best attempts are still out of a fallen heart, which falls short of God's perfect truth, which means that even their goodness is shaped out of a dark heart. So when Christ comes on the scene as the light of the world in Galilee and he starts to shine the light of truth, how does the world respond? They kill him because it's offensive 
for you to come into my empire and to tell me what is good, to tell me that I'm wrong, to tell me that I missed the mark. We got to get this, church. There's too many people nowadays in the church that agree with me on the, on the end where they say, yeah, now that I come to Christ, I know what's evil because God has told me what's evil, and yet I'm going to still hold on to what's good in my own rationality. But do you realize, unless you submit your understanding of goodness to God's truth of what is good, you're holding on to the darkness that the cross has freed you from. It's a serious thing. When I get onto Facebook and I see people going like, you know what, I don't care what the Bible says, is it a sin or not. They just want to love each other. And then the church is just silent because they're like, I don't want to offend people. What is love? What is goodness? It's not an emotional understanding out of a fallen heart. Love is God. Goodness is God. And for any of us to be content with not only not shaping our our understanding of goodness according to what the Bible says is good and living right with God's word, but then being okay when people just are stuck in their darkness and just say, yeah, just go and be happy. Just live your life and do whatever you want without there being a burning in our souls that says you're holding on to the darkness that my king has freed you from. We're missing it. It's not that that we look at the world and we said God hates you. He says God has freed you from what you say is good. Your understanding of joy, your understanding of satisfaction comes out of a fallen heart. And man, we got to get this. It's not a small deal, church. If we do not align ourselves as the church with God's word, then how in the world is the world going to find true light? Because light is life. That's what Jesus says in John 8. I have come to give you life, and life abundantly, the light of life. Isaiah 5, 7 says, Woe to those that call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. And again, I just want to say this one more time. If we do not align our understanding of what is good and evil in the midst of a culture that just decides for itself, if we think that our culture is something new and radical and stuff, we're missing it. This has been around, it's just been a circle that spins over and over because men decide for themselves what they want to do and it just goes in a circle. If we do not align ourselves with God's truth, then truly what we're doing in the most biblical sense is we're binding ourselves to the darkness that he's freed us from. And the battle, the tension is not against light and dark because when light came onto the scene from the beginning when God said, let there be light, the darkness fled. And when light came onto the earth through Christ, the darkness fled. And victory is the Lord's. 
Revelations has been written, sealed, done. So what is the battle? The battle is our souls. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of flesh which wage war against your soul. This is what the enemy does. If he can bind us to what is dark, if he can keep us in the non-transformed mind of this world, then we will never find the victory that has already been given to us in the light. The light has already overcome. But if the enemy can keep us here, and he can say that darkness is actually light, so just keep pressing into it, then we'll always live lives feeling hopeless because we've never clung to the victory of the cross. Ephesians 5 says this, Let no one be deceived with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and is true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So then my question is, okay, if we're called to proclaim his name in the midst of this tension that will never be broken as long as the two kingdoms are here, how do we do it? Well, Paul says here, he says, expose the darkness. Why do we do that? Well, we're not called to assimilate, and we're not called to just be on the opposing end and attack. So what do we do? This is the beauty of a testimony. Because we're going to be in this for a lot of weeks, so instead of giving you all of this biblical doctrine, I just want to tell you what happened when Nero burned Rome. And when Christians were called to live holy. Because testimonies not only portray the glory of God, but they can build our faith. We talked about that in the Living Stone sermon. How do we expose the darkness in a culture that is so prevalently dark? Well, this is what the early Christians did in Rome. They lived moral lives in a pagan culture. Husbands and wives were faithful to each other. They avoided divorce at a time in history when divorce, divorce was so common that marriage as an institution was starting to crumble. In the churches and in their home, they treated women with respect and dignity at a time when women had legal, little legal status and were virtually considered to be a possession. Christians did not have abortions. They kept their baby girls and they nurtured them and loved them and raised them to maturity into young women that knew their king. But more than that, they would go out into the seashores and into the forest and they would hunt each day for the children that had been abandoned. And when they found those little girls that were left to die, they would bring them home and they would adopt them into their families. Then they would love them and they would raise them into the knowledge of Christ. In those centuries, the pagans were marrying at younger and younger ages. Women often were not allowed to be out of their homes, sometimes ever in their lifetime. And that's because there was such a shortage of women due to female infanticide. They were killing all of the women. So they'd be kidnapped if they were out of their home because someone wanted a wife. 
because there weren't any available to marry. So marriages were arranged in that culture, sometimes to girls as young as 11 years old. But the Christians had a different moral standard. Christians in those centuries insisted that their women would not marry until they were, until they were 18 to 20 and that they would be virgins at the time of their marriage because their sexuality was sacred and precious. So while the pagan world had a decreasing supply of women, the church had an abundant supply. And historically, the church cornered the market in the Roman Empire for women. And a lot of pagan men started coming to church. <laughs> because there was such a shortage of women in the culture. They couldn't find anybody to marry. But in the church, not only did they find women, but the women that they found were virtuous. They lived by a standard. They were holy they were not like any other women that they'd ever known or seen before. And the church had some rules, one of them being that their women could not marry a non-Christian man. So not surprisingly, men became increasingly more open to conversion from paganism to Christianity. And so by the thousands and eventually even the tens of thousands, men began to become part of the church. And I, I want... Let's just pause right there. This is in a time in history from Nero's reign up until uh, 314 A.D. This is a time in history where people will say for about 200 years it was illegal to draw breath as a Christian. You would be killed. And yet the church flourished. When the plagues hit the cities... The typical pagan health practice of the day was to abandon the city, whether it would be measles or smallpox or bubonic plague or some other epidemic. You would just leave to the mountains, to the sea. And the result of that was that many times children were abandoned in the cities and the elderly and disabled who weren't capable of leaving were just there left to die. Many times not because they got the plague, but because they starved to death because no one was there to feed them. So what did the Christians do? In order to live out Peter's call for their lives to be holy and proclaim the greatness of the king, when the plagues came unto Rome, the Christians stayed in Rome. And for many, at the cost of their lives, they stayed and provided food and water, care and love. And what happened is that when the plague finally subsided, sometimes six months later, the people who abandoned the cities would come back and they would discover... Uh, what they would discover is that their own family members no longer trusted them, but they trusted God. They turned to the church and found in the Christians who lived holy lives the reality of Christ, and they gave their lives to Him. When the cities were being repopulated, huge numbers of slaves and other forced into repopulation efforts would march across the empire to Rome and other ma major cities. And when they got there, they had no place to live. They had no jobs. They had nowhere to work, which means they had no food. So what did the church do? The Christians welcomed them. They opened up their churches and homes and found places for them to stay and places to work and food for them to eat and clothing for them to wear and those relocated found a place unlike anything they'd ever known or seen or experienced from the communities of their own homes to the point where they said, we don't want to go home, we are home. And the long-term result of this holy living 
drew the world to the reality of God. It was not political voices that brought the world to God. It wasn't politics. No man could stand up on in front of the Roman Empire and say, repent, the kingdom of God is here. They didn't have that option. A lot of us think that, hey, I don't really have a political voice, so I'm just going to live my life and do my own thing. Peter says, live holy. Because what you do in this life, amongst the tension, amongst you not assimilating, but being present in the world, for God being displayed through your life, has everything to do with God's glory. Everything. In the first decade after Christ's death and resurrection, Christianity contributed to about 3,000 people, which was only, like I said, 4,000th of 1% of Rome. A number that is so small, it's just statistically insignificant. But this was a people who got a call, who heard that they were a holy nation, that they were a chosen race, that they were a, a royal priesthood, who had once been trapped in the sin and the darkness of their mind, and now had been brought into the realities of Christ. There were once a people who lived for themselves, but now... They lived to proclaim the name of the one who ushered them into his marvelous light. They did not assimilate with the culture among them, and they did not flee from it either. They lived holy lives in the midst of the tension. And by the year A.D. 200, there was 218,000 Christians in the Roman Empire, which is a huge increase, but it's pretty insignificant still. That's only 36 one-hundredth of one percent of the population. But... Those Christians who lived holy lives, who lived set apart for God's purpose and glory, by the time the year A.D. 350, there were 33 million Christians. They grew to a point where now they made up 56% of the known world. 56% from four one-thousandth of of 1% to 56%, and how did they do it? It wasn't fighting, and it was not attacking. It was living in the reality of God's kingdom and what he calls to be good and right, and the world shifted forever. Charles Spurgeon says this, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has such influence has so much influence over the church. Put your finger on any prosperous page in church history and you will find a little marginal note that says, in this age, people could readily see where the church began and where the world ended. Do we stand apart from this world? And do we have peace in that or does that offend us? And do we know why we stand apart? These are the things we're, we're going to be getting into in the next couple months. And we're going to offend you guys. I'm not saying all of you. But at some point, you're probably going to be offended. Because all of us have parts of our minds that have not been renewed. But I just plead with you, as we get into this, let the Word of God draw you into the light of truth. And let go of what you call good so that you can find true goodness in his reign in your life. Jesus said in John 8, 12, if you guys want to stand and come up and get uh, communion while I'm saying this. Jesus said this in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light of life. Light of life. May that light shine from this place. This is the culture around us right now. There is 42 million abortions that occur every year in this world. More than 115,000 abortions occur every day, and at least one woman has an abortion every second of every day. There is 153 million children who live as orphans. This number includes 18 million children who have lost both parents, but it does not include millions of affected orphans who live in institutions or on the streets. There is 245 million women who live as widows in this world. 115 million of them live in significant economic deprivation and social isolation as a result of being a widow. Today, over a billion people live and die in desperate poverty. 700 million in slums, 500 million on the verge of starvation, 93 million beggars, 200 million children exploited for labor. There's 2 billion others who live less than $2 a day. Over the past 40 years, wrong page, more than 18,000 children will die today either due to starvation or preventable disease. Over 27 million people live in slavery today. That is more than any time in history. There is more slaves today than were seized from Africa in four centuries of the transatlantic slave trade. Many of these millions are bought, sold, exploited for sex in what has become one of the largest and fastest growing industries in the world. Sex trafficking is a multi-billion dollar industry worldwide. Nearly half of all marriages will end in divorce. Fewer than half of all American households today are made up of married couples. Pornography is rampant. We still see social strife, decreasing liberties and increasing persecution. Christians face persecution of some kind in more than 60 different countries today. And on the lowest end of the spectrum, at least 100 Christians around the world will be killed for their faith this month. Countless others will be persecuted through abuse, beatings, imprisonment, torture, deprivation of food, water, and shelter. And there is millions upon millions upon millions of people who have never heard the truth of the gospel. We have been given a light that it might shine out from this world. And if if, if we can look at the testimony at all from the church's beginnings, the effects of, the ripple effects of if we truly grasp the goodness of God and display it with intentional attitudes in this world, it will reshape this world. And even if it doesn't, in the end, God will be glorified as we are persecuted. 
in Esther 4, Mordecai, when Esther is afraid to go in front of the king and confront him, he says this to her, who knows whether you've not come to this kingdom for such a time as this. And church, today I ask you, have you not come into this kingdom for such a time as this? To live amongst the tension of this world. But in the midst of that tension, shine a light that will destroy every dark soul, every plan of the enemy, and every wicked thought this world could ever conceive. This bread and this wine, this is not cannibalism. <laughs> this is the most beautiful remembrance that that our sin was so bad. This world was so wicked. Our hearts were so broken. They cannot be fixed. So Christ himself lowered himself as the reigning king of heaven to kill himself, to die on a cross, to give his blood for the sake of us being redeemed and being drawn into light. His body was broken for us so that we could find life. We take it and remember this blood signifies the new covenant which was established in his death and resurrection that he has extended us a new heart that not only shows us what is evil but what trains us into what is good let us not only be transformed in our understanding of what is evil let us be transformed into the reality of what is good as we take this blood